Have you noticed how those advertising jingles have a way of burrowing into your minds? They almost become like a second nature to us. Like the paper towel company that is the quicker picker-upper. Burger King, have it. Wendy's, my wife said, this one will really date me. Wendy's, where's the... Oh, that's great. Add a shirt. She said, nobody's going to know that. That was so many years ago. Or the insurance company, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Or this one. I fall in and I can't get up. My question for this hour is, have they? In fact, some would have us believe that they have fallen and that they're not going to get up, so much so that they've been left on the floor and that the next group has entered into the room and has stepped over them and taken their place and the head of the house has now given to this second group all of the blessings because Israel has fallen. And in such a way that they have been replaced and will never rise again. Well, when we arrive at chapter 11, the great Jewish apostle Paul has something to say about that. Verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall? Literally, have they fallen to such an extent that they have fallen away, is the actual words there, never to rise again? What are the next two words? God forbid. Have they fallen beyond recovery? Has this happened? Never. Now, have we seen that phrase, God forbid, before in this book? Of course we have. Back in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the next two words? God forbid. We, we look here in verse 1. God forbid. Ha, ha, has, has God cast away his people? God forbid. That is a strong, passionate, emphatic statement. Have they fallen beyond recovery? God forbid. No. Never. So I propose to you as we begin this session that those who embrace the theology of replacement theology when it comes to the nation of Israel don't have a problem with our theology. They have a problem with the authority of the text. Dr. Cohn mentioned that last night, sort of tongue-in-cheek at the beginning of his session, and we all laughed, but it's exactly true. Paul says here, God forbid, that has not happened. Now as I see it, as we arrive here in Romans chapter 7, we really are arriving at the last part of Paul's great treatise on salvation. Chapter 12 begins to describe all of this outworking of our salvation through us. Right now it's been our salvation in us. And as I see it, I don't believe chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a parenthesis. I think Paul is just continuing his discussion on salvation. 
The need of salvation, the provision of salvation, the results of salvation, the promises of salvation. And how Israel fits into this scenario. Well, if you're going to tell me in chapter 8 that nothing can ever separate those to whom this salvation has been imparted, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, then I have a question. What of Israel and all of those promises God made to Israel concerning that Old Testament corporate call for service? Whatever happened to that corporate call God made to Israel? And how does that pertain to the promise he has made to us about our individual spiritual call to salvation? Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. What of Israel? And Paul says, let me deal with it. I love the way Dr. Ryrie used to summarize the book of Romans. You can still hear him saying it. He would say, Romans, righteousness. God's righteousness needed, imputed, imparted, vindicated. I like that. There's no break there. And that's the way I see it as we come to the text that has been assigned to me today. I see the character of God fully vindicated in this chapter. His character as sovereign, his character as gracious, his character as faithful. And I see that being the key character vindication in, in these verses. As I see it, there are three thoughts that run through the thread of these verses. First of all, he is faithful to the people of God. Secondly, he is faithful to the prophets of God. Now let me say this, we're going to take both of those sort of as an overview for a few moments in these verses. Number one, sort of an overview. Number two, sort of an overview. And then when we get to the plan of God, that dispensational plan of grace, is when we're going to come to the text and move through these 15 verses, verse by verse. But first of all, faithful to the people of God. Just as an overview, look with me quickly at verse 1. I say then, Paul says, hath, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Benjamin of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's as if Paul says, if, if God has taken deliberate steps to cease any gracious dealings with Israel or Israelites, then what am I doing here? What am I doing here as a Hebrew of the Hebrews? I'm here by the grace of God, which is still upon us and still available to us. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now these verses, again in overview, seeing that he is faithful to the people of God, I believe help us keep some things tremendously straight and clear that we need to be clear on. I believe that at times we open the door to this concept of replacement theology by some of the terminology we use. When we speak of Israel as God's Old Testament people, and then we speak of the church as God's New Testament people, 
we open the door, if but a crack, to this concept of replacement theology. I would propose to you that we need to do, use different phraseology. Israel, since day one of their sovereign, gracious, corporate choosing, is God's national people. They always will be, and they have their particular eternal inheritance, and those blessings, every one of them, will be fulfilled. They are the only national people God has. And they are the only national people God will ever have. And that national choosing will never be rescinded. That's why I believe there is an inherent danger. And I say this carefully. When we embrace this concept today of this nationalism, when it comes to the United States of America. I'm not saying we're not a blessed nation. We are. I'm not saying we were not founded by God-fearers. We were. I'm not saying we need to be praying for our nation. We do. But the United States of America is not God's national people. And behind that political perspective when you really read not only between the lines just read the fine print you will always see how anti-semitism sneaks in there it's not overt it's covert but it's there we are not god's national people and we can't take old testament verses and apply them as promises to our nation there may be some that are principles for any nation, but there are promises that are distinctly given to God's national people. And we need to call Israel God's national people. Ever since their corporate choosing have been, always will be, that will never be rescinded. That's why I have the word there to the people of God, his national people. Secondly, the church well, since the day of Pentecost and to the day of the rapture is by the church's sovereign, gracious choosing, God's spiritual people always will be. And the church, God's spiritual people, remnant Jew and Gentile together have our particular eternal inheritance. And every blessing promised to us will be fulfilled. There are the physical seed of Abraham, there is the spiritual seed of Abraham, and then there are those who are both. And the Apostle Paul, who is writing these words, is exhibit A to that last category. Secondly, by way of overview, he is faithful to the prophets of God. And by the word prophet there, I'm using it in the broadest sense as simply a proclaimer of truth. There are two proclaimers of truth who are mentioned here. Verse 1, I say, that of course is the Apostle Paul. Look with me at the last part of verse 2. Know ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord... They have killed thy prophets and dug down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? 
I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. I do not believe for a moment that we do injury to the text to recall those of us who are pastors, who are modern-day proclaimers of truth, to recall God's faithfulness in salvation and God's faithfulness in sustainment. And in that position, these two become twin pillars of remembrance when ministry becomes weary. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle who on a number of occasions asked his hearers to pray for him so that he might be bold and not timid in opening his mouth. The Apostle who wrote to young Timothy of what it was like to be deserted by his co-workers. The Apostle who wrote to the Philippian believers knowing what it was like to have abundance and to suffer need. This apostle who spoke to the Corinthian church of momentary light affliction producing a greater weight of glory. Momentary light affliction. And then seven chapters after making that statement to the Corinthian believers described his light affliction. Of the Jews, five times received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice beaten with rods, once stoned, thrice suffered shipwreck, a night and a day have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watching often, in hunger, in thirst, in fastings, in cold, in nakedness. Behold those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the churches. That, man is his quote-unquote light affliction. And this is the one who is speaking to us of God's faithfulness. Or this prophet. We can read these verses very glibly and just jump into our theological understanding of them but I remind you that when Elijah made this statement, it was a confession that we read of here in Romans. He had sunk so deep into discouragement and despair that he asked the Lord to kill him. He was an emotional exhaustion because of the unmet expectations of ministry that you and I deal with every single day. If you go back to, to 1 Kings 18... Here's Elijah in a spiritual battle. Elijah must have had the thought, well, I won. The prophets of Baal are literally gone. They didn't just lose the battle. They lost their lives. <coughs> Therefore, to the winner goes the spoils, right? We all play by the rules. Jezebel decided she wasn't going to play by the rules. She tells Elijah, you're a dead man in 24 hours. That isn't what I expected. That isn't what I expected. We preach a sermon, and somebody says, you're a dead man with it. No. We say, boy, that isn't the response I expected. That isn't the response Elijah expected. 
So what did he do? In emotional exhaustion, he ran and ran and then prayed, Oh Lord, just kill me. And the Lord in his sustaining grace, what a tender picture, as God sends an angel with heavenly prepared food and tells Elijah, eat and sleep and eat again. And then, folks, God, I believe, allows Elijah to see a bit of the fruit of his ministry. And that is exactly who I believe we have referred to in verse 4. Elijah, you have fruit. I have worked through you. Oh, my dear prophet, there are 7,000 that by their own choice have not bowed the knee to Baal. And you need to press close to hard to me. You need to know that I'm working through you and I will continue to. You know, pastoring is probably the most complex job in the world. And sometimes, instead of quitting, we just need to cry out to God and say, Oh, Father, in your mercy and grace, will you just show me a glimpse of some fruit to encourage my heart? Just, just, just show me a sense of your presence. You pastors, you're studying for sermons, you're counseling, you're helping those who are grieving, you're advising those who are preparing for marriage, you're leading a volunteer organization, you're overseeing a budget, you're switching back and forth in all of these responsibilities many times a week. Yes, I know that, 45 years until I stepped back from the senior pastor in January of 2020. The American Psychiatric Journal, two years ago, not a real fundamental organization, but the American Psychiatric Journal said this about clergy. Now listen to this quote. This mental switching back and forth is costly in terms of cognitive effort, behavioral control, and the regulation of emotions. Wow. Did they nail it? May have been the only time they nailed it, but they nailed it on that one. <laughs> and God says here, Elijah, listen to my voice. Just, just press hard to me. Let me show you a bit of that fruit. And, and both testimonies of these men who have gone on before us and are used in this great illustrative illustration here proclaim to us that the God who is faithful in salvation is the God who is faithful in sustaining. The God, it is God who has saved us, and God who has called us, and God who has sustained us, and He is faithful for His honor and His glory, and all redounds to His praise. So when Pastor Tom began these days and said, our prayer is that somewhere along this conference, this conference will be a shot in the arm of encouragement to you. Pastors, here it is. You do have fruit. There is fruit there. Sometimes you can't see it, but it's there. And in those moments of emotional exhaustion, don't quit, just press hard to God. Eat and sleep, and eat again, and press hard to God. 
And even in those moments, cry out and say, oh, dear God, in your grace and mercy, will you just give me a glimpse of my fruit? I was talking to a pastor recently who said, I am never on Facebook. He said, I was trolling my wife's Facebook, and I saw something that someone had posted from a previous congregation that I pastored. Someone had shared a theological truth, and this person had posted, I am so grateful my pastor taught me this. He said, wow, (laughs) what an encouragement that was to my heart. Yeah, yeah, God's faithful. He who has called us will not leave us. He is faithful to the proclaimers of truth. Thirdly, God is also faithful to the plan of God. And here's where we come to the text. And in the text, we see this paradoxical tension between the election and the sovereignty of a faithful God and the gospel with the responsibility, the responsibility of faithless humanity. And when we look at it in the context here, there really is not a problem. Absolutely critical for us to see the context of these verses in the two-word summary I've given to it. Dispensational grace. Dispensation. Somebody was having lunch with somebody the other day. I was just sharing this with a, with a pastor here. It was a, a former member from one of the churches I pastored, and they now had moved away, and they're going to another church, and they said, Pastor, we love our new church, but I want you to know that, that we're no longer dispensational. I said, really? I just kept eating. I don't know if they were expecting me to pass out or yell or stand up and start preaching to them. I said, oh, okay, okay. So I'm, I'm eating away and drinking away. And, and I said, so, so you believe that Abraham knew as much about the program of God in salvation that Paul knew? Well, no. Oh, okay, okay. I ate a little bit more. And then I said, so... You don't believe that Paul ever in the New Testament said, what I'm teaching you now was previously hidden, but now it's been revealed. Look at me. No, I don't believe that. There were times when Paul said something was previously hidden, it's now revealed. I took my next bite and I said, you're a dispensationalist. (laughs) You just believe in this progressive truth when it comes to the concept and the salvation of God. Then the person said this, yeah, but you know Schofield in seven or eight or six, don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get lost in the weeds. Paul knew much more than Abraham. Paul revealed things that had been previously hidden. There is this great progression of truth. And I am sure that we all have appreciated and shared many times in our messages the succinct insight shared by Dr. Ryrie in his seminal book, seminal book, Dispensationalism Today. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The object of salvation in every age is the living and true God. The requirement of salvation in every age is faith. But the content of Abraham's faith differed from the concept of Paul's faith. That's just the way it is. Now, the second word there, grace. 
that underlying character of God in every age, in all of history. Dispensational, yes, but grace, grace, wonderful, marvelous, awesome grace. There was grace in the Old Testament, in God's corporate call of Israel for service. There was grace in the Old Testament in the court of the Gentiles. There is grace today. There will be grace in the tribulation period. There will be grace in the millennial reign. If it were not for grace, no one at any time would ever be able to approach the presence of God. And that is true whether we are dealing with the national call of service in the Old Testament or the spiritual call of salvation in the New Testament, which Tom made so abundantly clear in his contrast in the overview. And so the rhetorical style begun in chapter 10 continues. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Is, is the plan for God just to discard and cast away his people? No, that's not the plan. It never has been. If it is, again, what am I doing here? A Christian Jew, part of the believing remnant. God hath not cast away his people, notice, whom he foredew. Now, I ask you this, how could this even happen? Harrison makes a very insightful quote. The very fact of God's choice excludes the possibility of his desertion of his own. That would be a total violation, not only of the faithfulness of his character, but it would literally void what he sovereignly accomplished in the Old Testament, will accomplish after the church age, and is accomplishing today in the church and in the New Testament. And so we need to be very, very careful concerning that. Very careful. Now, all of our attention, and we recognize this, that uh, uh, we, we, are, we are riveted to this word here that causes so much debate, those whom he foreknew. Prognosco, foreknow. Is this strictly to know beforehand, or is there a deterministic nuance to it? It occurs seven times in the New Testament, as you know, five as a verb, two as a noun. We could spend the next hour looking at all of those passages. I'm just trying to stay on task and finishing the text that was assigned to me. The other usage of that word here in, in the book is Romans chapter 8. Just flip two pages back. Romans chapter 8. And we have the word appearing before this great progression of thought. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, the way I see it, and then on in that progression, is simply those he foreknew to be the elect, he preplanned what their destiny would be. And our destiny is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
and he who began that good work in us will perform it. Amen? And he who began the good work in the nation of Israel will perform it. Amen? It's exactly right. It's the same concept there. One used corporately, one used individually. As I have said for years, predestination has nothing to do with election. I believe predestination has to do with purpose. Election has to do with people. But there is a great distinction there. Now, God is sovereign over both entities, but there are limitations. You say, really? Yeah. I believe that. I came up with this working definition of sovereignty some years ago. The position God holds and the power God possesses as the true and living creator God of the universe. Ultimately, God is in complete control of all things. His control is manifested through his direct or permissive will. Now notice this. Or his allowance of certain events to occur according to the laws of his natural universe. Notice, or his spiritual universe. You jump off a building, you're going to hit the ground. And if the building is high enough, you're going to splat on the ground and die. Now the theologians can sit around and discuss... Now, was that God's perfect will, or was that God's permissive will? And I say, it's in accordance with the laws that God built into this universe. One who rejects Jesus Christ as his Savior will spend eternity apart from God. That is just built into God's concept of his spiritual universe. Now, at times, those events may be in contrast to his desired will and corrupted by original sin. I was having a debate with a brother in Christ, a good brother, who is in another camp than I am. And, he's, and I was talking to him, and I said, look, 1 Timothy chapter 2, God would have all to be saved. John chapter 3, verse 18, gives us the intent for God sending Christ into the world. Or verse 17. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but his intent was that the world, cosmos, sum total of all humanity, would be saved. This brother looked at me and he said, well, if you tell me it's not his will that any should perish then you're telling me that the unsaved person who rejects Christ is stronger than God. That he can, that, that, that he can, he can misdirect, short-circuit God's will. I looked at this person, and this is what I said. I said, by the time this day is over, I am going to sin. I may not sin in act, but there is going to be a word that is going to escape these lips, or a thought that is going to pass through this mind that is a sinful thought. Are you telling me it's God's perfect will for that sinful thought to come into my mind? And be very careful, interpret that in light of James. Oh no, I'm not saying that. All right. We really are on the same page. We really are on the same page. Yet for his children, there is the promise that he works through all things, directed or allowed, good or bad, for our ultimate good and his ultimate 
glory. A year ago, I was to come here, and I had a stroke in July. Praise God for God's grace and doctors and that TPA miracle drug. It truly is a miracle drug. And before they discharged me from the hospital, 24 hours later, they did an echogram. And they found I have a problem with my heart, which could cause sudden death, but now they're watching it. So every year I have to have an echogram. So Pastor Tom, Pastor Tom asks me, how are you doing? In an email. I sent him this email back, told him what they found, and this was my concluding thought. You know, when you get older, it's always something. I get this email back from this guy. And the first line is, praise God for his sovereignty. And I stopped and I thought, I just told you, as in my mind, as I'm sitting there, I have a problem with my heart. It's something else now. And then I continue to read the email. I am so grateful you had the stroke. Because if you had not had the stroke, they would not have done the echogram. And they would not have found what's wrong with your heart, which is fixable. I said to me, to myself, that's why Tom gets the big bucks. <laughs> He's right. He's absolutely right. This is not an attack on the sovereignty of God. He permits, he directs. He allows his natural universe or spiritual universe to go. And yet for those of us who are the child of God, he works all things together for our good, our ultimate good, and his ultimate glory. But in our text here, the debate centers around this question of how much relationship exists in this word foreknowledge when it comes to the sovereign choice of God. In the Old Testament corporately, in the New Testament individually. Now, as I see it, I, I think there are basically two positions in our orbit. Outside of our orbit, there are many more. But within our orbit, there seems to be basically two. Dr. Ryrie takes the Ryrian concept. There is some relationship and or decision inherent in the meeting to foreknow. It is not a neutral concept of perception only. But notice, this is extremely important when, re when, when reading Ryrie. You may disagree with this, but notice, he draws a very strong distinction between predestined and this word foreknowledge. And he's very bold in drawing that. Said that this has, this has no application to this concept of predestined. He draws that distinction. Now the other position in our orbit, and, and probably the one that, that most, if not all of us in this room, might, might very uh, clearly hold to. Dr. Edgar, there is no deterministic meaning or, influ or influence, inference of relationship. Now that's the wrong year. It's spring 2003. If you want this paper, look it up on Chafer's website. It is an excellent art, about 30 pages. 2003, Dr. Edgar says it is a neutral concept. There is no deterministic meaning or influence or inference in relationship. Edgar goes on to say, to say it does, limits his omniscience because it limits his foreknowledge to things he has already determined or caused. Rather, it is like a professor who plans individual lesson plans for a post-test class. 
And he can do that because he already knows how each student will answer each question. Now, this is also the conclusion that Henry Thiessen, in his excellent work, Systematic Theology to My Students, draws. Now, both of these positions, though, and there are those in our orbit on both sides of these, freely speak of both the plan of God and the choices of humanity, which Paul clear, freely speaks of throughout this book and these chapters, both in relationship to Israel as well as the church. Dr. Ryrie goes on to say in that same chapter, nothing in the sovereignty of God alone saves anyone. This results through personal faith in the substitutionary death of Christ. And he elaborates on that. There is no salvation without the message of the cross. And then Ryrie sort of has a parenthesis in there, at least in my volume it does, and it says, if you think there is, read Tom Stiegel's book, end of parenthesis. <laughs> says there is no salvation apart from the teaching of the cross and apart from the engagement of the will to believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. So we recognize, yes, that even though there are these two concepts as we look at this phrase, sometimes we simply have to come to the end of ourselves and recognize that in verses 33 and 34 of this chapter, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor. And we need to focus on our message. As Kurt said this morning, let's stay on message, our message, our, our offer of hope to a hopeless world. And that is in John chapter 3. And do not start, anytime you come to John chapter 3, do not start in verse 16. You start in verses 14 and 15 that give us a great, great illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so Christ must be lifted up. Lifted it up for ethnic Israel. If anyone within ethnic Israel did not look at that serpent, what happened to them individually? They died. And then he says, now, like that, God sent Christ, lifted him up on the cross... So that whoever would look and believe shall have eternal life. Well, though, did he not send so that he had grounds to condemn and glory in his condemnation? No, verse 17. He did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world. The intent was that all the world would be saved. That's universalism. No, it isn't. Next verse. They are condemned already because they do not what? Believe. Take all of those verses in sequence, and that needs to become our absolute focus. Verse 2, know ye not that the scripture saith of Elijah how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dug down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life? But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. I believe to read into this text, you end up just being foolish. One author said, 
There were 7,000 that God had sovereignly elected and had been hiding from Elijah. And now he's going to show them to Elijah. It had nothing to do with Elijah. This was just a reservation of God's eternal covenant and counsel where, where he had sovereignly chosen these and now he was going to reveal them to Elijah. I say, what is the problem with looking at this and God saying, I want to open up your spiritual eyes to see a bit of your fruit. There are 7,000 who by their own choice, by their own choice, have not bowed their knee to Baal. And as we said, I personally believe this was part of Elijah's fruit that so encouraged his heart. I think this is what encouraged his heart. It wasn't the heavenly food. It wasn't the rest. It was seeing some of the fruit of his very ministry, as we said earlier. And Paul says, I, I want to remind you of a day when our national departure from God was widespread. It was so widespread that it even cost one of our revered prophets to consider deconstructing. And even in that moment, Yahweh declared, I have a remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now catch this, verse 5, catch this. Even so then, today, <laughs> there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There has always been within national Israel a remnant of spiritual Israel. There has always been there is today, and there always will be in the future. This remnant of believing Jews from within the totality of ethnic Jews. Why? Because of the election, last part, last word of verse 5. Because of the election of what? Grace. First part of verse 6. And if by grace. That's what Dr. Cohn said last night. That's why they missed it. That's why they stumbled. Righteousness is always by faith, never by works, never has been. It is an election by grace because of the grace of God and personal faith. I, I love this summary paragraph, and I, I thought it was in the PowerPoint and it wasn't. Let me just read it to you. If you want a copy of it, I can give it to you. I apologize, it's not on PowerPoint. But just listen to this summary on the doctrine of the remnant, and then I'll, I'll tell you who wrote it. In the history of Israel, a remnant has always existed. It's always been discerned. There's always been a spiritual Israel within the national Israel. In Elijah's time, 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. In Isaiah's time, it was the very small remnant for those who say, who, uh, for those who say God still forbore to destroy the nation. During the captivities, the remnant appears in Jews like Esther and Mordecai and Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. At the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, it was the remnant that returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. At the advent of our Lord, John the Baptist, Simeon, Anna, and those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem were the remnant. During the church age, the remnant is composed of believing Jews. But an important aspect of the remnant is prophetic. 
During the great tribulation, a remnant out of all of Israel will turn to Jesus as Messiah, the sealed Israelites of Revelation 7. It is inferred by many students of Scripture that this great multitude of Gentiles will be saved by the witness of these 144,000. Some of these will undergo martyrdom. Some will be spared to enter the millennial kingdom. Many of the Psalms express prophetically the joys and sorrows of the tribulation remnant. That is on page 1,225 of the Schofield Reference Bible. Now, don't send me an email and say, do you realize the holes in the Schofield? I know there's holes. I'm just saying this is a great paragraph here. I think Schofield really captures it on the doctrine of the remnant. And it's always been by grace. That's how righteousness comes and always has. Look with me again then at verse 7. What then? What then? And this is absolutely critical. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh. And this great quote from Psalm 69. But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David said, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always, always. The rest, this, this vast majority, miss what they are seeking. Why? Because they are seeking it in error. They sought it and they seek it through legalism instead of trusting faith in response to God's grace. Again, you heard that profoundly understandably explained last night in Dr. Cohn's presentation of why they stumbled. And because of this, they are blinded. The word here really is, is hardened, but it's more than the word used in chapter 9. Here it is literally God has given a callous, a hardening, a blindness. As Tom Constable says, God's hardening binds people in the sin they have chosen for themselves. And yet there is no parenthesis. There is no interruption. This was prophesied. The truth is that Israel cast off Yahweh. Through their continual disobedience, their idolatry, their self-righteous legalism. They lost the desire for God and God hardened and blinded them through the instrumentation of the evil one. And the same is true spiritually today in Romans chapter 1. As our brother John said, I forget the day, all these sessions run together, but as our brother John said, and I love this analogy, he said they chose the direction and they chose it, and they chose it, and they chose it, and God finally gave them the shove. That's right. And, and, and that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Now, you come in here and say, Israel's choice? Yes. God's plan? Yes. Explain it? We can. But I can give you the reason for it. I can give you the reason for it. The exclusion of some for the possible inclusion of all through God's mercy and individual faith in God's Son. And here we come to our main rhetorical question in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. 
but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Here it is. Is their faith permanent? Is their fall permanent? Is their fall permanent? No. Their fall is purposeful. The door of faith is now open to the Gentiles and now on the same basis of faith alone. Jew and Gentile. This remnant from the world, Gentiles. And this remnant from ethnic Israel, the Jews. Bow in personal faith to Messiah Christ. And we as Gentiles are to live in such a way that we are to make the Jewish people jealous of the blessings of their God so that they will turn spiritually to Him. Nationally, God will deal with it. God will restore them nationally. The center of it all in the millennial reign. But spiritually, we are to be making them jealous now, provoking them to jealousy so that they would spiritually turn to Him. And my friends, verse 11, the last part, leaves absolutely no room for a shred of anti-Semitism on our part. Only, only a radiation of thanks and praise. Here is my screensaver on my laptop. I see this innumerable times during my day. A few years ago when I was still pastoring, I was contacted by an organization. They said, we're having in a few months, many months at that time when they called, a celebration of Israel's independence. This is the anniversary, whatever anniversary it was. We have contacted you because we have invited a man who is a veteran from the Six-Day War and still has shrapnel in his body from that war. And he's going to speak for 20 minutes on why he loves Israel. And we are calling you as an evangelical pastor in our community to ask you to come and speak on why you as an evangelical pastor love Israel. I called my friend who works for a Messianic Jewish organization. He is the one who many years ago told me, whenever you're talking to a Jew, don't call yourself a Christian. And he is Jewish by birth. He is of the physical seed of Abraham and the spiritual seed of Abraham. He explained, of course, the Church of Germany and the flag and the cross and Hitler and all the rest. He said, no, this is what you say. I'm a Gentile believer in the Jewish Messiah. And I've used that ever since. And that has opened so many doors. This friend went on to say, the second thing I'm going to tell you is don't get up at this banquet and say, the reason I love blessing Israel is because then God has promised to bless me. He said, my physical kinfolk have had it up to here with that. He said, my people already feel used and manipulated. And what now is spreading through the ethnic Israelite community is, the evangelical Christians bless us because then their God is going to bless them. And they even tell us that. Bless Israel, I'll bless you. So we're just being used for them to get blessings from their God. So he said, leave that up. Just speak from your heart. My people can see sincerity through anything. I'll tell you, I prepared more for that 20 minutes. I was more anxious and nervous. And I got to the banquet that night, and this banquet room is full. Hundreds of people. And I'm looking at some of the leading 
wealthiest citizens of Grand Rapids, Michigan, influential in the Jewish community and the community at large. And Josh, who is to my left, he gets up and he speaks as a warrior, as a retired soldier. And then I get up to speak. Not as an evangelical pastor, I said, but as a Gentile believer in the Jewish Messiah. And I had their attention in that room. And for the next 20 minutes, folks, for the next 20 minutes, I said, I love Israel because that is where our Bible, the Old Testament, comes to life. But I love Israel because that is where the New Testament comes to life. I love Israel because that is where my Savior was prophesied to be born. And I believe, I believe my Savior is the Messiah. I said that. And I believe that my Messiah, Savior, who is also yours, was born in that land, ministered in that land, died in that land, rose again in that land. And one of these days, he is going to return to that land. And he is going to restore the nation of Israel to world prominence. And the true and living God will do that. And that's why every day I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I gave them the gospel. The banquet is over and you can see some stairs off to my side. And I walked down those stairs from the platform and I was standing there talking to Josh. And I could see this man from the back of the banquet room start coming toward me. And he was coming toward me with determination. One glance, this guy's a rabbi. Second, I think he's mad. And, and people are waving at him and poking him, and he's just going like this, and he is coming straight for him. He is moving around tables and chairs. Josh's voice became noise. My brain is in overdrive. What did I say? How did I offend him? What is he going to do to me? Is he going to shoot me? What is he going to do? All these thoughts are going through my brain. And he approaches me. And he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he raises his other hand. And he lifts his face to heaven. And he begins to loudly, in the most passionate, beautiful, Hebraic voice you have ever heard, speak over me. And Josh quickly bowed his head, so I bowed my head. And he was done, and as I lifted my head, Josh looked at me and he said, Wow, Rabbi just pronounced the ironic benediction over you. And I reached out and I shook his hand and I said, Sir, I said, Rabbi, it is an honor to meet you. And I am humbled by your blessing. This man just heard the gospel in a sincere way, in a way that my heart was crying out. I want nothing more than for you people truly to see that this is your Messiah with a great and deep love. We were soon joined by Rabbi's son. And there the four of us stood by the flag. My wife had the presence of mind to take a picture. And there we stood until the room was clear of all of those except for those who were cleaning up and our four wives. And that began a relationship. And after that, whenever there was a shooting in a synagogue, Rabbi got a note from me. 
said, Rabbi, we're going to take five minutes this Sunday morning and we're going to have all of our elders come up to the platform and we're going to pray for the protection of you and your people. I send Rabbi notes. He sends me thank you notes back. Folks, I'm going to tell you, every day I see this picture, I say, God, may Rabbi see something in me that makes him desire Messiah Christ. I pray that time and time again. I pray that for his son. I pray that for Josh. And then there's sort of a second quirkiness to my prayer. I say, Lord, and if they don't come to Messiah Christ by the trumpet sounds, I pray they're part of the 144,000. I love these men. I love this rabbi. And that is what I see here just oozing from the Apostle Paul. I see this deep, deep love. Deep love. Paul says in verse 15, For if the casting away of them by the reconciliation of the world... <laughs> Did you catch that? Paul is stressing this over and over. The Roman church must have needed to hear it. He says the setting aside of chosen corporate Israel were part of God's plan for the reconciliation of humanity. I love what Dane says. The Gentiles are not saved merely for our own sake, but for the sake of God's election of Israel. And I believe we look at these verses here in Romans and we say, God, you are going to do one day what you are going to do nationally because you are faithful. May we be faithful to today provoking the Jewish people not to rage but to jealousy. The day is coming of national repentance of Israel. God will fulfill his promise which in Genesis chapter 12 he gave that through all Israel all the world will be blessed. When all of those who survive the deception of the false Christ and the purging judgment of the tribulation period finally look upon the returning Christ coming in glory, they will embrace him nationally. When will that happen? Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, Blindness is only in part, then it will only be until the fullness of the Gentiles become. And so all Israel shall be saved. Nationally embrace him. Dr. Stallard will handle that at the next hour. Why? Why? Do you know why? Because Second Timothy chapter 2 says, even at times when we are faithless, he must abide faithful because he cannot deny himself. The righteousness of God vindicated. That is true individually and that is true corporately. And Paul says, if, 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 if the Gentiles were blessed by their disobedience, how much more will we be blessed by their obedience? Verse 12, if the fall of them be the riches of the world... And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness 
Verse 15, if the casting away of them be the reconciliation of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? You know what it shall be? It shall be life from death. (laughs) And the blessings that will come to the earth as Messiah reigns for a thousand years are indescribable. Any blessings today pale in comparison. Look at what, res- uh, at, at what rejection brought, says Paul. Now just imagine what acceptance will bring. They have fallen, but they will get up. In God's time and in God's way and because of God's grace, they will get up. And in that day, God tells us in Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them the heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances, do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Have they fallen? Yes. Can they get up? They will. God forbid anything else. Righteousness vindicated. Nothing can ever separate the church from the love of God. We rest upon that promise because nothing can ever separate God from the promises he's made to national Israel. And I believe that two prayer requests of our hearts every day, I truly believe this, Two prayer requests, two two prayer items that we ought to pray every day. Heavenly Father, may I live in such a way today that if I encounter a Jewish person, they'll see in me and they'll sense from me the blessing of Messiah Christ. And secondly, Father, thy kingdom come. Oh, for the day when your will will be done on earth as it is now in heaven. All for the praise and the glory of a faithful God of grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you for your grace. Your grace. Your grace. It is wonderful and amazing. And you who began a good work in the nation of Israel will complete it. Just like you who have begun a good work in us will complete it. For the glory of God, for the exaltation of Christ alone, we confess this. Amen.